guys, it's Melissa. Since we're an independent podcast, your support means the absolute world, whether that's on social media, in a podcast review, or a word of mouth recommendation. If you've been enjoying this podcast and would like to take it a step further, I now have a support feature where you can contribute a one-time donation at whichever price you'd like. Click the link in the episode description to learn more. Thanks, guys. Now enjoy the show. The Sisterhood of the Bottomless Mimosa. Welcome back to the sisterhood of the mimosa. Mimosa. Listen. <laughs> Welcome back. Um, that was not planned. That just came out. (laughs) The way you started it, it made me think of the song from League of Their Own. It's the same tune. The time has come for one and all. Do you guys sing that? You're softball. To play ball. Oh my gosh. You need to talk about your visit. To the Billie Jean King tennis court. I know. And I need to fucking go back um, (laughs) as soon as I can. So for those that listened to last week's (laughs) episode. (laughs) Sorry. Melissa's windscreen just fell off her microphone. It looks really funny. (laughs) We're off to a great start. Um, For those that listened to last week's episode, CJ covered Billie Jean, the tennis player from Long Beach, and we were thinking that, well, I was thinking that my softball field was by those tennis courts, and then I discovered that it was, so last Sunday, when I went to my softball game, I took a little peek around the field, and the Billie Jean tennis courts are literally like exactly pressed up against my softball field and I FaceTimed CJ yes and I showed her the courts and there's like a I think there was like a sign that said like Billie Jean something or other Mm -hmm. but I did not capture any of it or post any of it because I was gonna do that after the softball game but then shit went down everyone got distracted and it didn't happen so I'll have to do that Next time. I I also, she FaceTimed me while I was driving my rental car and I answered the FaceTime because I knew why she was FaceTiming me. So I was like (laughs) risking everybody's life around me, but I was like, it's worth it. I don't fucking care. It was worth it. Uh, Did, oh, and your fucking field trip to Amalia Erickson land. Oh, fuck yeah. How did I forget about that? Because it's been, because we took a week off. So it feels like long ago. Yeah, that was that same weekend. Okay, yeah. So then that so two days before the Billie Jean tennis courts, I went to Santa Barbara and had no idea that Solvang was like literally one mile away from where I was in Santa Barbara. And I found that out because I was going on Yelp to just try to find like a local restaurant to eat dinner at. And everything that popped up kept saying Solvang. And I'm like, what the fuck? What do you mean Solvang? And so I pulled up, like, a real map, and there it was, like, one mile away from the hotel I was staying at. So 
we went to Solvang before we came home, and I walked around that little creepy gnome village. It was just as weird and creepy as I ever thought it would be. But I took a pit stop in the Swedish candy factory, which AKA is basically home of Amalia Erickson. And it was so fucking cool. And I walked in there and I was taking pictures of everything. And I noticed that the Polka Gris candy maker was like eyeballing me. And I was like, oh, sorry. Like, I'm not trying to be that weirdo taking pictures of your whole shop. Like, my bad. He's like, no, 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 it's great, it's great. I'm like, I really like Amalia. Like, I'm a huge fan of hers. And he's like, how do you know Amalia? And I'm like, oh, my God, I love her. She's my she's my favorite. I know everything about her. And he's like, well, what do you know? And I, like, spit her entire life story right then and there on the spot. And he was looking at me, like, partly shocked, partly amused, and partly, like, who is this bitch? Is she from corporate? Like... <laughs> Is she testing us? Yeah. And so I told him that I have a podcast and I covered her on my podcast. I told him what episode it was, but then I couldn't tell him the title name, which is Fried Eggs and Polka Gris, because I was afraid he was going to ask what fried eggs were about. Oh, no. And then I was going to have to tell him it's in reference to me pressing my titty up on bare glass. I'm sure he would have been fine with it. It just wasn't really the conversation I was trained to have in Amalia Erickson's candy shop. Um, but I did get some really cool pictures, so I posted them up on the G-Gram. So if anybody hasn't seen them, go over there, check them out. The guy, the candy guy, was, like, so fucking happy and, like, living his best life as I was taking pictures of him making the candy. He looks really, really happy. He was. <laughs> and then he literally spoke the words out of his mouth and said... No one has ever walked in here and known anything about Amalia Erickson until you did. (gasps) How crazy is that? Our podcast is fucking changing lives. Of course, I shouted out Anne Shen in the book and told him that that's where I learned about her. Um, But there were, like, other people in the candy shop listening to me and thinking, like, who is a psycho? And so it was a really great moment. I have some very good news and some very bad news for the listeners at home. The good news is that for one moment, you did it. You took us over the 300 followers mark. But only for a fucking moment because we took like, or I took at least like a probably about a week off posting from Instagram and we went right back down to like 290. So thanks and also I'm sad. Um... Again, if if you're listening to this, certainly you had to be following us on Instagram. But if not, you can follow us at at Mosa Sisterhood. Please just follow us. And speaking of Instagram, both of our women from episode 27 were correctly guessed. Billie Jean King was correctly guessed by a lovely last name, Bonnie. Melissa, do you want to tell us about Bonnie and say hi to Bonnie? Yo, 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 Bonnie! Bonnie. <laughs> Bonnie actually inspired our very first, um, I think it was our very first, like, seg- segmented episode. Um, no, we do Bonnie not need Bonnie the Aquarius, Aquarius, right? Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. So, Bonnie shouted out Billie Jean, which isn't very surprising because she is also from Long Beach, California. Love it. 
Um, so shout out to you, Bonnie. Woo, 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 woo. And then uh, my lady of the hour was um, shouted out by a podcast, which was super cool because that means that this podcast potentially follows us or somehow stumbled across our post. But shout out to the podcast that's called The Explorerist Podcast. They're similar to us. Uh, They describe themselves as a time traveling through women's history, one era at a time, to find out what it was like to be them. So we've actually never had heard of this podcast before until they commented on our post and correctly guessed that Nellie was lady for episode 27. So Mm -hmm. good job, guys. I'm pretty sure that means they've probably covered her as well. Um, But if you like our channel... I'm sure you'd probably like theirs as well, so maybe you might want to give them a listen. Love it. Um, And then also on the topic of social media, dun, 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 Twitter. So I have something to say, CJ. Okay. After having failed Twitter for like, I don't know what, three months now? And I go on it every day, and I post things, and I like shit, and I fucking promote, and I try and talk to people, and I post good polls about fucking french fries and tater tots. Are you about to tell me you deleted our Twitter account? (laughs) No. But I came to the conclusion a couple of nights ago as I was browsing through Twitter, and I realized what Twitter is. (gasps) What is Twitter? Twitter is literally just a platform where people try to outwit the other people so like every single post every single reply every single everything on twitter is just who can be more clever than the last person and then Mm. out clever the 200 people that come after that person and they even out clever themselves with every post and i'm not really one with words on that level. But I think you I think are. you're great with words. You're just not a baby back bitch with words. <laughs> but I think... I, this is what I'm proposing. I think you should spend, like, three days taking over Twitter, reading what people are writing, <laughs> and throwing some shit out there and seeing the response. I'm, like, vigorously shaking my head no. (laughs) Out of the two of us, you are definitely far more clever with your word choice. Well, I was... It's so funny when you were saying that. I was like, you would think as a double Gemini that I would be fucking obsessed with Twitter based on what you just said. And yet, I have no idea how it works. (laughs) I don't understand it. I say let's just do a trial period. Who do I respond to, though? Like, how do Don't I even talk to, to... No, no. Just start rapid firing statuses. The most clever, most absurd things you can just think like of. Just, random shit. Does random it have to be shit. related to the podcast? No. Anything you want. Okay. Literally anything you <laughs> Flash want. Flash forward two years later, CJ McCullough, the 400th president of the United States of America. <laughs> we have not had 400 presidents. I don't know how many we've had. 49. <laughs> Fuck, now I gotta look this up. I swear to God, give yourself okay. three days and just rapid fire 
any clever, witty, ridiculous thing you can think of and see okay. what happens. Okay. Like, I think we should, like, make this, like, a literal test and see what happens. Important update, we've only had 45 presidents, not 400, so. Okay. So, see, that would great. be a great first tweet. I was going to say, we could start right there. <laughs> <laughs> we could do a Twitter poll. How many presidents have we had? Four, 45, 400, 400,000. <laughs> All right, so I'm challenging you. Okay. Can I do it, like, after Jazz Fest? When does Jazz Fest start? Oh, yeah. Well, so Jimmy comes into town on Friday, and then when he leaves is basically when Jazz Fest starts. So it's just a... So you're saying in a month you'll be able to take over this challenge? (laughs) saying in, like, two two weeks, half a month. (laughs) Uh, I'll think about it. All right, fine. I'll just... I'll log in occasionally... Like, passing gas. Like, when I need to just, like, get something out of my system, I'll log yes. into Twitter and just pass that gas. Yes. That's kind of what Twitter is. It's, like, verbal f- passing gas. It's, like, verbal farting. Yes. Or, yes. like, or not verbal, but textual farting. Yes. Okay. It's, like, treat it like word vomit. Okay. Just throw it all out there. Okay. All right. Like, be like all Yoko right. Ono on Twitter. <laughs> okay, thank you. That was helpful. Okay. I gotta channel out. Oh my god, I'm just gonna start. What if I just start adding Yoko Ono like every single tweet until she replies to me? I would fucking die if she retweeted us or like tweeted at us or whatever it's called. Yes. Commented. Mm-hmm. I would die. Okay. Okay. All right, fine. Uh, last little order of business. I have a, a piece of news and a slightly sad update. So the piece of news is that we will be skipping next week. So whatever week that is, because I'm bad at doing math, because I will be doing the Jazz Fest thing. Uh, Jazz Fest is a big festival at the fairgrounds in New Orleans. And in our last episode, I mentioned how fucking stoked and life changing it was. Wait, see, I'm already drunk. How stoked I was and life changing it was that... Fleetwood Mac had replaced Melissa's like, we are not going to make it through this episode. That Fleetwood <laughs> Mac, that Fleetwood, maybe I should go first, that Fleetwood Mac had replaced the Rolling Stones as the headliner for Thursday, May 2nd. Not but three days after we recorded that episode, it was announced that Stevie Nicks had the flu and for some reason, that means that she has to cancel a show four weeks from now. So I kind of don't believe it was the flu. So they pulled Three out days Jazz after Fest. announcing that she was going to play. Like, before the episode even fucking posted. Like, it was not... Or the day it posted. It was a sad, sad day. And uh, she was replaced... They were replaced by... I can't remember the name of that stupid band. Widespread Panic. Widespread Panic. <laughs> you know what's really funny? So Widespread Panic is like a jam band. My friend Emily, who had never heard of them, thought that like when people were saying Widespread Panic had replaced Fleetwood Mac, that it was like a joke. Like, like that it wasn't an actual band. Yeah, and just like, like complete panic is taking over now that right. Fleetwood Mac's gone. So I, if you're a Widespread Panic fan, I have a feeling you're not listening to this podcast, but maybe you are. I have, I don't listen to them. I don't have any like shade to throw to them. I'm under the impression that they're not quite the caliber of the Rolling Stones or Fleetwood Mac. So I thought that that was an interesting third choice. Wah, wah. I got a refund on my ticket, thankfully. 
I guess it's just not to be. You know why? You know why it's not meant to be? Because I'm meant to see Stevie Nicks peer to peer. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like. She wrote Landslide, has a 35-year music career. I had had a podcast for a year, and we're going to meet toe-to-toe as two women who understand one another. And that's why. That's right. That's why. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's that. So I went to the Winn-Dicks today, uh, which I usually do not go to, but I had to get some items that were hard to find. And I decided to check out the wine selection there to try to change it up, and I got a... $16, but on sale for $13 bottle of wine. That is a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc that I thought you would appreciate because I know you love those Woo! New Zealand Fuck wines. Yeah. Uh, it's called the Crossings Awatere Valley. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Marlborough. Um, and it's great. It's really, really good. Super clean. Has a nice finish to it. No weird tangy aftertaste. I'm all about it. I'm half a bottle deep. And I'm going all the way. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Just disclaimer. This is going to be a drunk episode because life's been pretty fucking lame for like a hot damn minute. <laughs> Melissa and I were texting before the show like, we can't wait to get fucking wasted on this episode. <laughs> yeah. I had a shitty fucking day. Mm. You know, sometimes you just come home and you're like, I need to get drunk on wine on the podcast. So yeah. Please take this moment to excuse us for any type of slurring that may come or any drunk rambling. So, yeah. Well, should I? Oh, wait. You Sorry. You See, I already forgot that you have to review your wine. <laughs> it's going to be great, guys. So I don't, I don't have much of a review because I've already reviewed this wine. Um, but like I said, I was having a shitty day and I couldn't bring myself to drink the bottle of rosé I was planning to review tonight because fuck rosé. So I grabbed a bottle of this JNSQ Sauvignon Blanc that I've already reviewed on the podcast. Mm-hmm. It's like the um, perfume bottle. Yeah, it's like the perfume bottle. It's je ne sais quoi. Um, which... I don't know that I said this last time, but it says je ne sais quoi that's hard to define and impossible to resist. Kind of like you. Ooh, I love that. That's right, bitch. Anytime, anytime a French phrase comes up on the show, I immediately think of Walter Bradley. <laughs> bonjour. Bonjour, Walter. <laughs> Um, so yeah, sorry. It's the same wine I've already reviewed. It's fucking good though. So check that shit out. JNSQ Sauvignon Blanc. I am also half a bottle through this wine. Oh wait. Half a bottle through this wine? Is that, that's not how you say that, is it? Yeah, I mean, that makes, I mean, I'm drunk, so it all makes sense to me. (laughs) (laughs) My God, definitely. I'm drinking half the wine. Um... (laughs) 26 minutes in, half the wine's gone. We haven't even reviewed our women yet, so that's that's kind of where we're going tonight. Woo, God bless it. Okay. Yes. As usual, I'm so motherfucking excited <laughs> to cover my woman tonight. Um, I don't believe she's somebody that you know or that most Ooh. people will know, okay. although she is a present current day woman that's killing the fucking game right now and I was really lucky enough to have just 
randomly stumbled upon her a couple weeks ago while listening to TED Talks. Oh, okay. And I was so fucking blown away by the first TED Talk of hers that I saw that, that I then proceeded to watch every other TED Talk of hers that she has on the internet and then proceeded to stalk her whole life online and then found something else that she did and just blasted through that in a fucking day. And I have literally been like living through this lady's platform for two weeks and I fucking love her. Okay, I'm excited. So, tonight we are going to be talking about Esther Perel. And she is a Belgian psychotherapist who specializes in sex and relationships and whose main course of study is exploring the tension between the need for security, being love, belonging, and closeness, and the need for freedom, being erotic desire, adventure, and distance. I think this woman is a fucking genius. And I cannot wait to tell everybody about her. And I really hope that people look into her and listen to her TED Talks and read her books. Because I think she is providing a perspective of relationships that we don't have, but that's necessary for our long-term survival in humanity. Okay, word. It's gonna be deep. It's gonna be a little bit deep. <laughs> but it's not a sad story. But it no is gonna Nazi be Germany. No, only for one second. <laughs> only one second of Nazi Germany. Okay. But I will let you know that this is going to be informative. It's going to make people think. It might piss off a couple of people. It might make some people really happy. I don't know. I think that the way people perceive this woman could be black and white. Um, I think you and I will love her, mainly Mm -hmm. because we come from that world of sociology and sexuality studies where we spent, you know, five years studying this type of stuff. So we can really appreciate these types of perspectives um, in terms of, like, human behavior and how social culture and like shifts in social culture can influence human behavior so i hope i hope everybody else likes it and if not you all can go fuck yourselves all right so so her name is spelled as if it would be esther but i've heard it pronounced on video as esther so i don't know if that's like a a belgian thing or whatever but that's how i'm going to be pronouncing it so esther was born in 1958 and she was raised in antwerp belgium esther is jewish and she was born to two polish holocaust survivors prior to meeting her parents were both enslaved in the nazi concentration camps for four years and were the sole survivors of their own families Her father had nine siblings, and her mother had seven. Both of them, too, were the only survivors of those groups. And after they were released from the concentration camps, her parents ended up meeting each other out in the real world. How strange is that? Whoa. Okay. Yeah. But, like, that, of course, 
like who else can you be with who's going to understand such a deep experience you know like but to also just think that like you were there at the same time yeah living experiencing it in your own way separately surviving it leaving it and then connecting and like having not connected that whole time you were in there like I don't know it's wild to me it's so crazy but I mean I know that like the concentration camps were packed with people right so there's a huge chances that lots of people never cross paths while there but it is I think it is really just mind-blowing that they were they connected afterwards and got married and had children and lived their life Mm-hmm. So, Esther notes that both of her parents came out of that experience wanting to charge at life with a vengeance and make the most of each day because they both felt like they were granted a unique gift that they had the chance to live life all over again. But because they were two Holocaust survivors, and this was something that I actually heard her talk about in one of her TED Talks, or I heard it in one of her YouTube videos, that after they had, I think this was very common, that after people were released from the concentration camps, most of those survivors did end up living in communities together, because I think it's kind of like, you are a community already. Like, you've kind of become that community. But right. like once you've once you've left it, like no one's dispersing. I think they're kind of just sticking together and keeping each other strong. And so she grew up among tons of Holocaust survivors. Right. Like everybody that was around her was basically a Holocaust survivor. Well, I was gonna say too, there's like at least one full generation of European Jews where pretty much every single one of them was in the Holocaust. Or they, they yeah. either left Europe or they survived the Holocaust. Like, that's all there was, you know? So, yeah. word, word, word. So, her childhood was raised in that environment. And she noted that there were two groups around her. Those that didn't die and those who came back to life. Uh, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> it, it, we're almost done. We're almost done. I told you a very a very small glimpse into Nazi camps. We're about to we're about to exit. I'm ready. I'm ready. But what she meant by that is this, and this is quoted from her: "Those who didn't die were people who lived tethered to the ground, afraid, untrusting. The world was dangerous, and pleasure was not an option. You cannot play." take risks, or be creative when you don't have a minimum of safety because you need a level of unself-consciousness to be able to experience excitement and pleasure. Those who came back to life were those who understood eroticism as an antidote to death. Well, okay. So uh, Esther attended the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Israel And then came back to the States for graduate school. She planned to stay for one year, but never used her return ticket. She fell in love with New York and with a man who is still her husband today. His name is Jack Saul, and he's the assistant professor of clinical population and family health at Columbia University School of Public Health. 
For the first 20 years of her career, she was particularly interested in couples and families who were in cultural transition, which she drew directly from her own experience and that of her families. She worked with refugees and internationals, exploring both voluntary and forced migration. She witnessed the falls of political regimes and became curious how this played out directly in the kitchens and the bedrooms of the families that she worked with. But the bulk of her work was with mixed couples. Intercultural, interracial, and interreligious families were also in a state of cultural negotiation that was playing out in their own homes. Her primary interest was in how cultural forces affect gender roles and child-bearing practices. So, that's a little brief summary on her. Then, next, I kind of want to transition into that first TED Talk that I saw that literally blew my fucking mind away and, like, literally made me think, like, I need to know this woman. I need to know every single fucking thing about this woman. I need to know everything she studies. I need to hear everything. I need to read it all. I need to listen to it all. Give me all the info. So... I randomly stumbled upon her TED Talk, which she did last year in 2018 at South by Southwest, and it was titled Modern Love and Relationships. And I, like, randomly stumbled across it because, like, whenever I'm feeling very, like, lost, depressed, anxiety-ridden, confused, just, like, whenever I'm just, like, feeling like I don't know what the fuck I'm doing and I don't know what to do, I try to, like, give myself my own therapy by, like, educating myself on what I'm supposed to be doing in like times Mm -hmm. of kind of like uncertainty Mm -hmm. and TED talks are just like my life Mm -hmm. I love them because they're very much approached on a scientific educational platform where I feel like that's what I need like I don't want to listen to some emotional you know sensitive empathetic explanation on what I'm going through like I want somebody to spell it out to me scientifically like this is what's happening this is why this is what you do next like a like like a hardcore strategy that's the Virgo I love it I know (laughs) (laughs) and that's how this fucking woman is which I very much appreciate because I think there tends to be a stigma on sex and relationships or couples therapy Or, like, things along, like, that kind of romantic spectrum of relationships where, one, it tends to, like, only be catered to women for some reason. Like, I just Mm. think that category is very much, like, stigmatized as, like, it's meant for women. All the women come here and learn about love, you know? And, like, she, for one, being, she's Belgian, she has a very thick strong like spicy belgian accent Mm -hmm. she like kind of has that eastern european like badass vibe to her where men can respect it and men can receive it well and i was so surprised that when i was watching this first ted talk they do like a scan of the crowd and there were fucking tons of men in that crowd and I was like, huh. Is she okay. hot? Um, well, she's older. She's, like, in her uh, 60s. Oh, okay. For sure. Yeah. And so, I mean, she's an attractive woman, but, like, she's mm-hmm. an older woman. Right. Um, 
But it's more about how intelligent she is, how articulate she is, and just genius. Just straight fucking smart. But she's also funny. She has, like, a humorous side to her. Um, And she is compassionate. So, I don't know. Does all those things really drew me to her? And the TED Talk was, like, an hour long. I watched it all, and then I watched every other fucking one. Like, I spent, like, days watching her talks. It didn't even matter. (laughs) My whole life was watching these talks. And so I just want to, like, take a moment to explain. Because it was an hour long, I can't tell you the whole hour, and I want everyone to go listen to it after this episode. But I do want to touch on some of the points that she made that I think really kind of explain her perspective and who she is as a psychotherapist that focuses on sex and relationships. So I'm going to kind of summarize briefly what her points of view were in this specific TED Talk. So, and I've watched several of her videos and all of them kind of start off this way. So clearly this is kind of her ground view and then she expands on it. But she basically always starts off by explaining that in today's modern world, as in like now, Never before have we invested more in love and never before have we divorced or broken up more because of love. She talks a lot about what relationships were like historically and how cultural changes and shifts have brought us to the hellhole we're currently in. She explains how back in the day when we used to live in villages and communities and tribes, There were rules that were implemented that told people what to do, how to live, how it was done, and everything was very clear. It was just planned out for you, and it was what it was, no questions asked. If you were obedient, which people were, you received a sense of belonging, a sense of identity, certainty, but, like, no freedom. You just followed the rules, and you lived how the path needed to be lived. Once urban life began... And, like, we started having cities and, you know, we're evolving as a culture and as a society. Um, We became much freer, but in that, we became far, far, far more alone. Rules began to break, cultural shifts took place, and nothing was planned out or certain anymore. For example, who's going to be the breadwinner? Who's going to feed the baby? And who has the right to demand for sex? She notes that in the past, what you did was what your father did. And at this moment, we have unraveled the system and created a world of options, choices, and freedom. But as a result, we now have to negotiate everything. It's all up for grabs now. It's no longer clear who's the breadwinner, whose career takes precedent, who's going to wake up and feed the baby, Who's going to be responsible for initiating sex? Who's planning the dates? What gender should we be dating? How many people should we be dating? Do we tell the truth about the others that we're dating? (laughs) Do we want children? Are our needs being met? Are we happy? Like, all of these things are kind of hands thrown up in the air, and it's like, I don't know. Are we? Am I? Should I? Should we? And so she claims that all of these big decisions have burdened the self like never before, and now we all just have to figure it out. And because of that, 
conversations have become the center of relationships and we have to talk about things that we've never had to talk about before, that we don't know how to talk about, that we don't have the vocabulary to even talk about, and we have to talk about things we almost never even talk to ourselves about. So she says that today, people are still wanting the same things that traditional marriage is about, but we now also want a best friend, a trusted confidant, a passionate lover, and to be all of those things every day, nonstop, forever. Mm. That we've basically created expectations in our romantic partner that once an entire village used to provide. Uh, ah. Esther, 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 preach, Esther, yes. (laughs) So then she goes on to say, this is the last bit, and I'm quoting this part. The rest of it, I kind of like abbreviated a little bit. I paraphrased. So she says, quote, I'm going to tell you right up front, I don't have three easy steps for what you need to do, and I don't feel bad about it. I don't have a solution because many of these things are not problems we have to solve, but paradoxes that we need to manage. Due to this, we are facing a massive epidemic of loneliness within our culture that's becoming a modern-day health crisis. Gnarly. So is her... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, well, maybe you're about to get to this, but I was going to say, is her work, like, at, when you first mentioned her, I thought it was going to be very specific to, like, sex and romance, but it sounds so much broader than that and, like, deeper than that. So we'll get a little bit more into that later. Okay. okay. Um, I think, so what I explained, in my opinion, and from what I know about her so far, this, everything I just said out loud is basically her um, building block. It's building block number one. Mm -hmm. This is the fact. Word. Everything, all the problems that people believe are happening in their relationships or within themselves in their relationships, she dials them back down to the building block. Mm -hmm. So first understand this. Word. And now let's figure out how this has influenced that and how we can understand it logically based off of the building block. So, and I will get more into that. So this next piece that I want to talk about is people often ask her how she became an expert on relationships and sexuality. And I'm going to read off a little tiny piece that I got from her personal website, which is her answer to that question. And this is what she said, which is a direct quote. The truth is, it was entirely unexpected. Trauma was woven into the fabric of my family history and would inspire my work for years to come. My parents didn't just want to survive. They wanted to revive. They wanted to embrace vibrancy and vitality in the mystical sense of the word, the erotic. I owe them so much of my perspective on life, as well as my belief in the power of will, the search for meaning, and the resilience of the human spirit. To me, there is a world of difference between not being dead and being alive. I owe this understanding to my parents. Mm. So I think, like, having 
I mean, they literally live the worst of the worst of the worst. And for them to be able to have experienced something as traumatizing as that and to come out of it with like the will and the ability to move on has almost in a sense been her mindset when Mm -hmm. dealing with couples who are going through infidelity, death, you know, financial struggle. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, oh, we can all get over all of this. It's just a choice. Mm. And it's Mm. like a choice that you have to make. Uh, I didn't ask you to personally attack me like this. (laughs) I also, but like side note on the, on that real tip, I'm, I'm super intrigued by her use of the word erotic because we tend to think of that as being super sexual, but it, it sounds like she's encompassing so much more with that word. And I'm super intrigued. Yeah. And I actually, I feel the same way. And, um, I don't have all the answers on that yet because I think most of those answers end up in a book of hers that I have purchased, but just haven't read yet. Yes. (laughs) So I can only kind of, since I haven't read her book, I don't know all the details, but I can touch a little bit more on what I have read in terms of reviews and what I know the book's about. So we're getting actually right into this. So Esther's, Esther's visibility came, which you're going to fucking love this. So like when she kind of like blew up and people knew who she was and like her name got out there, that happened because she wrote an article that was titled In Search of Erotic Intelligence, which was inspired from the Clinton and Lewinsky affair. <gasps> Tell yeah. me everything. I don't know. I don't know everything because I didn't have time to read that article. Like, but I haven't I know, read the book yet, bitch. But like basically that cheating scandal broke out. It was the biggest yeah. thing that had ever happened. It was yeah. everywhere, nonstop. And she was inspired to write an article that I'm pretty sure defended the parties. I would imagine, yeah. Based yeah. On her. Huh. And so that article, so what I read is that that article was about couples and sexuality from the perspective of a foreign therapist that was observing American sexuality. Mm. And the article went viral and it led to an offer to write a book, which she gladly accepted. So her book, which is called Mating in Captivity, Unlocking Erotic Intelligence, is meant to be an honest, enlightened, and provocative conversation on relationships and sexuality. She wants people to question themselves, to speak the unspoken, and to be unafraid to challenge sexual and emotional correctness. In the book, she encourages her audience to grapple with the tensions, obstacles, and anxieties that arise when our quest for love and security conflicts with our pursuit of adventure and freedom. She aims to take relationship advice out of the exclusive female market and make it dual gender. Mm. She wants to refrain from offering simplistic solutions and instead create a community around the paradoxes of our intimate lives. Sexuality lives at the intersection of multiple disciplines. So, 10 years later, in 25 translations... And thousands of letters in her mailbox, 
it's clear that her book and her message struck a chord to society. She was quoted to say, I am moved that I was able to educate a common dilemma with which so many of us struggle with. There is a paradoxal tension between the erotic and the domestic. She also has a second book that's called The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity, which I believe is a very open-minded book about cheating. Like I was saying, (laughs) I, I haven't read the book, but I did read a quote that came directly from the book. And I read this quote, so I was trying to search more about this. And I, of course, came across some fucking bitch on the internet who has some stupid blog. And she basically was blasting the fuck out of Esther and saying that she's a complete maniac and she's a terror to traditional, like, you know, this all the fucking bullshit. Why you may. Exactly. And so she's pissed and she's so pissed about this book and she's so pissed about the messages that she says in the book. And this was a quote that she was mad about that when I read this quote, I was like, fuck, that's some smart ass shit. (laughs) Wait, so the quote you're about to share is one that this blogger was pissed off about. Yes, she was so mad. And I was like the total opposite. (laughs) Okay, I can't wait. Um, So this is the quote. It says, very often we don't go elsewhere because we are looking for another person. We go elsewhere because we are looking for another self. It isn't so much that we want to leave the person we are with as we want to leave the person that we've become. A hundred percent. A thousand percent. Why was she mad about that? Because she's like one of those fucking right wing conservatives. It's like because her husband's cheating on her. With Jesus, women. Jesus Christ said that there's infidelity is a sin. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, I'd be pissed if I got cheated on. But like, I think that's why I find her so enlightening and inspiring. Is that she makes you really think about it in the logical human brain scientific perspective Mm -hmm. she like removes the emotion out of it and is like this is what's happening yeah yeah so now this is going to bring me into my last piece about her that's my most exciting piece about her okay esther perel has a podcast and it is one of the most insane, real-ass, fucking crazy shit podcasts I've ever heard in my life. And I have obsessively binged listening to every single episode nonstop until I finish the entire thing. And now I'm desperately waiting for season three to start, which oh will God. be starting this spring. Her podcast is called Where Should We Begin? And it is real live recordings of her couples therapy sessions with real couples who are anonymous. And it's each episode is the session one of that couple's therapy. So you never get you never get to hear two, three, four, five, seven. You never get to hear the rest. You just hear day one of therapy session. It is the realest 
fucking shit I have ever heard. And, like, I'm telling you this on a level of, like, blown, mind blown. Mainly because, it one, it's so humbling as a person who, like, has had relationships that mostly have been terrible to one to be like I'm not alone yeah to two recognize how maybe my problems are nowhere even fucking near the level of other people's problems Mm -hmm. which is also humbling yeah um that's two three learning or seeing myself in some of these people in her episodes and recognizing that I am very much in the wrong a lot of times, mm. which is humbling. Mm-hmm. Like, hearing yourself through another person, but watching it as a third-party outsider yeah. and being able to be like, oh, shit, you do that. Oh, shit, you do that. Oh, shit, you do that. And then kind of dialing back and looking at yourself and being like, oh, shit, you know, here I am pointing fingers all the time, yet I also contribute to disharmony all the time. And so that's insane. And then, so while it is the whole, each episode is one couple and they're one story that you get to hear and it's very organic, but there will be times where it will kind of like go into like a, a narrator. So like, it'll kind of pause and then she'll speak to what was just discussed and explain to the listeners the technique she's going to use next to steer the couple in the direction. So like you're almost learning the therapy, the therapy side of it. Like you get to learn where the therapist is gathering her advice and where she's Mm -hmm. pulling it from and what Mm -hmm. they said that made her think about what she's going to advise next. So it's really interesting seeing both minds the therapist's mind and the couple's mind um but i mean i literally advise everybody to listen to these episodes whether you have been single your whole life don't give a fuck about relationships do give a fuck going through a breakup and heart like it doesn't even matter and then the it, they're just so empowering and they're so powerful And then the last thing I'll say about them is that she does a fucking incredible job uh, uh, bringing people on the podcast that cover every single demographic you can think of. Every episode is a reflection of a different group of people in society. She covers them all. She has... Gay and lesbian couples. She has transgender couples. She has couples that are dealing with health issues in their relationship. She has um, couples dealing with infidelity. Couples dealing with STDs. She has couples where one person's American and another person's from a different country and how that cultural problem is like plays a big role. She has couples where men have erectile dysfunction issues and she just covers all the fucking topics and it's nuts <laughs> like it is some fucking crazy shit I'm not <laughs> lying like 
And there are moments where I'm crying while I'm yeah. listening. There's moments where I'm so happy. There's moments where I'm in shock. Like, you just go through every... You're just blown. You're blown away. So I'm obsessed. And What's it? It's I, called Let's Start at the Beginning? It's called Where Should We Begin? Oh, Where Should We Begin? Okay. So she's just a fucking genius. And she's a badass bitch. And then one last point to make. In 2016... Oprah Winfrey named her the Super Soul 100 list of visionaries and influential leaders. You fucking made it. It's that's it. That's it. That's better than the fucking Olympic gold medal. That's better than the Oscar. If Oprah signed off on you, you're done. Like you're guaranteed entrance to heaven. Like everything <laughs> is perfect. Wow. So that's Esther Perel. And she's fucking nuts and she's so good and she's crazy and she's smart and she, she knows what she's talking about. Where, where should we begin? Where should we begin? (laughs) Where, I mean, I, I, there's so much I could say. Do you want to, is there, I'm like, you tell me what I should say. What do you want to talk about? I could talk about all of this for hours. As, what do you mean? About, sexu- about her? Just about her. Yeah. About any of it. About, like, I was thinking a lot about infidelity while you were talking and non-monogamy and I don't know. Do you have well, anything specific? Well, and so this is the other interesting thing about the infidelity topic is that she covers a handful of it on her podcast. Uh-huh. And so you really get to listen to the couples explain what happened. You get to hear the heartbreak and pain yeah. that not even just one of them, both of them are usually going through. And you get to hear her teach them how to communicate appropriately to each other about the topic. Mm-hmm. And then you usually get to hear her help them figure out why it happened because there's usually always a why. Right. And yeah. when you get to the why, it's usually exactly what she said in that quote. It never had shit to do with the other person. Right. Like the other person could have been doing something that made this person feel an insecure way. Right. Yeah. Right. And so they were they were internalizing things that made them act out right, because right. they weren't communicating right. about the internalized issues they were having. Mm-hmm. And so she breaks it all down like that to where you're kind of like, oh, oops, I guess we kind of made this happen. Yeah, right. Where it's like, everybody, we're human beings. We have a choice. We can do or not do. People make choices. People make bad choices all the fucking time. But, like, I think that couples, we have such a hard time facing difficult conversations that they often just get brushed under the rug out of fear of facing them. And when you don't face them, things explode. And shit happens. I'm also thinking a lot about how we, just in general, hold our romantic partners to such an insane standard compared to, like, our friends or even our family members a majority of the time. You know what I mean? But, like, friends is maybe 
more applicable because like family is kind of like oh well it's your family you can't pick your family but when you think about like the things i just feel like in general people are much more likely to work through problems with their friends or like not respond as strongly as they would to their romantic partner you know what i mean it's like well why is that like why you know what i mean it's like why would that be the case like you know like i don't know yeah yeah um and she agrees she believes that I was thinking about, while you were talking about her, again, kind of the infidelity. I forget exactly what the quote was, but kind of talking about why people cheat. Like you were saying how it was Mm -hmm. like them wanting to find another aspect of themselves or something like that. Yeah, I think it was that like they're not doing it because they want to leave the other person. They're doing it because they want to leave the person they've become. For some reason, that triggered to me a memory of getting very drunk at an old professor of mine who you will know, but I will not name on the podcast. I was his TA and he holds like a yearly TA party at his, I remember at his <laughs> I place in San Francisco. Um, this gay man who is in a, as many gay men are for whatever reason, an open relationship with his very long-term partner And I was, like, drunk and picking his brain about monogamy, and he said something to me that I will never, ever, ever forget. Ever. He was like, okay, if your best friend, like, found another great friend, or if they, like, fucked up in some way, would you break up with them and never talk to them again? And I was like, probably, no. Like, no, I wouldn't do that. That's my best friend. He's like, so then why would you do that to your fucking romantic partner or the person that you decided to spend the rest of your life with? <laughs> and I just kind of was like, I'm gonna just keep drinking. <laughs> like, but I will never, and I, I that's not exactly how he phrased it, but he basically made it like, why do you, his point was, why do you hold your romantic partners to such an impossible standard that you don't hold anyone else that you love in your life to? And I didn't, I was like, you got me. Like, it just totally flipped the way I think about romance and how hard we make it on ourselves because we want our partners, like she was saying, we need our partners to be an entire village. Yes. And nobody can do that. And you know what? That was the most eye-opening thing that she said to me because... I think I have a really bad tendency to do that, but I Mm -hmm. think that my, me doing that is more about filling a void that I never had in family. Exactly, yeah. Where it's like, I didn't have what family's supposed to have been. Yeah. So I've been, for the most part, very alone in lots of emotional ways, physical ways, communicating ways. I've had so many empties in lots of categories that should have never been empty. And, like, in adult life, you know, I guess I've always thought that, like, a romantic partner is, like, a partner in crime. They're, like, my the second person, you know? They're, like, my sidekick. They're my person. They're here for me. They chose me or something like that. Right. And so I think subconsciously I put this, like... You picked this, now fill all the roles that are empty and have been waiting to be filled. And then, like, when one of them isn't filled or one of them gets missed or whatever, I'm, like, uh, betrayed. Yeah. And, like, that's probably not even real. It's a complete fabricated thing I've made up in my head. Yeah. I think, and I think, like, most people do that. 
Like, literally, unless you were raised by the most emotionally healthy people on planet Earth, then, like, I don't know who the hell you are. You're certainly not friends with me. (laughs) (laughs) Today in therapy, my therapist was like, you know, like, do you have any friends who have good relationships with their moms? Like, assuming I did, I was like, no, of course not. (laughs) Like, who has a good relationship with their fucking mom? (laughs) Anyway, and she laughed. But, you know, I think... Oh, everyone does that. If you had like an unhappy or like not even unhappy, but a family situation that left you unfulfilled, which I think is a lot of people, majority of people, when you, when you even think about like families, multiple people, and you're trying to like funnel that into this one per, like even, it's not even a one-to-one, it's like a five-to-one ratio. Yeah. It's like, no one can do that. A, they can't be your mom, they can't be your dad, they can't be your brother, and they certainly can't be a combination of all of them. No. And then on top of all of those, your romantic partner, your sexual partner, like, you know, like, how do you play all these billions of roles? Now you have to provide me emotional support, security, boost my confidence. Like, there's so many things I'm expecting you to do, and you usually don't do even 50% of them, and then what, I'm just disappointed all the time? Yeah, right. Like, how unfulfilling is that? But it's it's like unfulfilled expectations that are never realistically going to be met yet i'm like oh they're gonna be met by someone and it's like no they aren't because they're not supposed to be but like we're taught that they are like that's you know what i mean like even if you are however emotionally healthy you are your upbringing was like that's what media you know like that's how we're socialized to think like there's this one person and it's just one and they're your all and they you guys are perfect and there's never a problem (laughs) and if you're not perfect then you might as well just fucking divorce them because fuck that shit i mean it's just so ridiculous ridiculous no it's it's bad and that's what she's saying is that like we're experiencing an epidemic of like the most extreme amount of loneliness possible because we all believe this is how it's supposed to be and no one will ever meet that and so everybody's unfulfilled and alone it makes me think this is a little bit of a tangent but i was recently listening to a, a psychiatrist that i follow on instagram who i fucking love and she was talking about how postpartum depression and how she believes she was like i honestly think in the western world a big part of postpartum depression is that for most of human history, we raised our children in communities. Like there were multiple caregivers. Like even if mm-hmm. you were the parent, there were people there who could care for your kid if you were tired. Blah, blah blah blah. She was like, now the way we live in the Western world, everybody's business is their business. There's no shared child rearing, and it's the same kind of idea of like you. Everyone like we're putting way too much on ourselves by being as isolated as we are. Like, we have to raise this child all by ourselves. Our partner has to be our entire community for us. Well, and so many of marital problems occur even more so after children because now all of those expectations we already had prior to children, we still expect to have them when our focus now needs to be 100% on children. Something that I find like really fucking interesting is that in like just in the way that you were saying how this kind of talk is like exclusive to women like even if you look at the supermarket and the cosmopolitan cover like five ways to like strengthen your relationship like you don't see that shit on maxim you know what i mean and i don't think i could be wrong and like god knows that i am like like a she female man hater but like i think 
I don't necessarily think it's that men don't care. It's that men are constantly taught, like, you shouldn't fucking care. So, like, you can't talk about that stuff. And you can't talk to your guy friends about how to be a better boyfriend. Because what are you, gay? And, like, you know what I mean? Like, there's just all this, like, toxic culture around men wanting to be better at communicating. Really, Like, it's just not baked into their identity no. the way that they're raised in this culture. And I think a lot of the time, like, that's a, that, like, men's sexuality gets very fucked up because of that. Like, everybody's just, everyone's so fucked up around yeah. sex. No, we're all like, fucked up. Especially now. Like, we're but all also, so fucked like, up. no one will talk about it. But no one like, will talk even about it. within marriages, no one will talk about it. In relationships, no one will talk about it. Right. All these issues are happening. No one ever heard about it till the minute they're sitting in fucking Esther's chair. And it's they're, like, what? Like, we've been married for our whole... What? You felt... It's like, no one's fucking talking. Like, so much of sexuality is, like, unspoken emotion. Yeah. And instead of speaking it, we just take it out on other people or we just fuck around or, you know. Yeah. But I do. I think, like, that's – I love – I have, like, many takeaways from this woman, from us there. But one of them is, like, how you mentioned that men aren't conditioned. Like, this stuff isn't packaged for men and it should no. be. Cause but you know what? They listen to her. I love that. And I love that. They and so a couple other TED Talks I watched, she then allowed the crowd to ask questions. So many of them were men. Oh good. And like and I and that's why I, I want people to actually watch her in action because you know and I don't know what this means socially or culturally, but I think her being a foreign woman yeah with that different female vibe plays a heavy role in how men perceive her Mm. or respect her or value what she's saying interesting if it was a american woman i don't know that she would have the same response interesting and i don't know what that i don't know Uh i really don't know what that means and I, i mean i think a lot of it also is that i think she, at least these TED Talks, they're all based in the United States. She lives in the United States now. Most of her clients are American, other than a handful that were also in these, like, inter mixed international mm-hmm. relationships. Um, and, you know, I think that, I don't know. I don't know what that means, but it seems like she gets through better. Like maybe because she's so different from the women they are with yeah, right. that they can hear her on a different level. Right. Like it's like, it's like sh- this isn't my wife yelling at me right. about what should be done. And like, nor is it my mom. It's like yeah. someone I don't know. What, it's a totally different woman, you know? Yeah. 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 So I think that's even more interesting, another interesting yeah. element. But one other thing I want to mention that I that I think is a very important skill that she teaches every single person in every episode on that podcast, and it's something that I want to start implementing in my own life, and like not just in romantic relationships, but with conflicts with coworkers, conflicts with friends, literally anybody. Like these skills can be used in every avenue. But one of the things that she does in every episode of all these couples therapies that I think is a very useful skill in communicating that we don't do is that so what she says is that like when couples are arguing, 
they have a t- like and they're like let's have a conversation about this fight we're having and they agree to have the conversation like they're finally talking it out they're ready to talk here we are even though they're willing to talk it out and speak through this problem there's just an automatic tendency that like probably stems from the ego which is subconscious and no one even realizes they're doing it is that you know, how conflict and conversation, you talk, now I talk, now you talk, now I talk. So it's like, here I am, and I'm going to tell you what you did and why I'm upset and neener, neener, neener. And the other person, while hearing you, is already planning what they're going right. to say in response. Right. So they're in their head, and they're like planning out how they're going to respond to you, which is usually in opposition to what you just said, because now they want to explain their side of it. That that's how these conversations usually go. It's two people explaining their sides that very, very rarely relate or correlate or meet in the middle. They're always op- opposing of one another. And so what she does, so they do, so you hear them do this in these therapy sessions where one's like, and then the other one's like, and she goes, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. CJ, say again to him what it is that you're feeling. That's like how she talks. You need to eat my pussy more. Okay. <laughs> and then so the CJ will go to speak to Melissa and say, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then she'll go, Melissa, repeat back to CJ what it is that you just heard her say. And then I'll be like, well, um, I, I believe I heard CJ say she needs me to eat her pussy out more. <laughs> okay, like, I did not know this situation was going to involve you. <laughs> Probably would have said something different. But so she makes them repeat back what the other person just said, and then she makes them reflect on it. So before they can even respond, they have to, like, Mm. sit there and soak it in, and then they're allowed to respond. And then the other person has to say, okay, so what you're saying is this is what you're – and then she even does it herself. So, like, when they're talking to her about problems, she'll even go – she'll even say, okay, let me make sure I'm understanding this correctly. You're upset because whatever, 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 and you're upset because of whatever, whatever, whatever. Is is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And then she'll go into, like, her response. But it, like, it works. Yeah. (laughs) Like, like you can actually hear it working. Yeah. And then when she corrects them on it and then makes them redo it, you hear the change in connection. Yeah. You hear the change in emotional, like, response. Like, a whole vibe switches Mm -hmm. to where, like, they actually have now heard each other on a reflective emotional lever, level as opposed to a combative, responsive level. Right, yeah. And it's every episode. It works every time. And I'm just like, <laughs> wild! Like, yeah. I don't know. And you know what? Like, this brings me back to, like, other... This, this makes me go on an even further tangent, which we can edit this out, but there are so many motherfucking things we aren't learning in school and fucking... Conflict resolution, healthy relationship perspectives, like all these dynamics that like we're all going to live our whole lives dealing with zero guidance on how to learn absolutely no emotional or relational skills in school, like nothing, (laughs) absolutely nothing. But they're like, oh, here's how you, here's how you calculate a right angle of a fucking, I'm like, really? 
Like, and here I am, 29 years old, having to go on YouTube to find TED Talks about how to manage conflict resolution in my relationships. It's like, right. what the fuck? This is so backwards and so twisted. Right. It's so dumb. I agree. So, like, again, praise the ground Esther Perel walks on. She's doing great work. She has insane perspective. And she is just smart. And she's doing things for relationship dynamics across the globe that we need i can't wait to read up on her i'm probably gonna buy her book not even i'm like so non-relationship oriented but i find which is probably a good reason to read her book but i just her foundational philosophy yes is so fascinating to me and that idea again like i want to know more about her ideas on the erotic like, the yeah. idea that the erotic isn't just about being sexual. It, that's part of it. But it's also just about being vibrant and alive. Yeah. I want to know more. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know more. That's what I'm saying. I think she just has a very, very, very smart, progressive perspective that, again, some people might think she's the worst thing to happen to tra- traditional love and romance. Or she's the best thing to happen to traditional love and romance. Right. I don't know. But, like, I want to learn more about what she thinks. Because for me, I think all it can do is help me. Yeah. Like, there's no way her perspectives are going to... They're only going to make my relationships better and, like, humble me. Be right. like, tone it the fuck down. Right. Like, right. you're overreacting. You're freaking out. You're out of line. Like, yeah, I mean, it's also useful that. just for... Yeah, like, not even outside of romance. Just conflict management, conflict resolution. Like, it just sounds like she's got the goods. She does. Will I be able to guess her sign? Do you think? Will I be able to guess her sign? You don't know it? I don't know it. There is no record on the internet of what month she was born in. I'm Googling this. No! I spent the whole day Googling that shit. What? Why? I I even stalked her Instagram page to see if anybody tagged her in a happy birthday post. We know she was born in 1958. Oh, she's gorgeous. That's all we know. Not on Wikipedia, not on her website, not on any biography thing online. What about, like, the little Jewish roster they have where all the Jew babies are registered? That's a thing, right? I have no idea. (laughs) We'll we'll cut cut that later. (laughs) But I feel like I have some guesses. Do you? I am so upset that we don't know her sign. Me too. Well, I have... I have a couple guesses. What are Should yours? I, should I mean, I, I literally don't know. So, like, I don't, we there's no wrong answer at this point. I guess. So, my of course, like my very first guesses were like, oh, it has to be a Venus ruled sign, like Taurus or Libra, right? Which, like, on both ends, I can kind of see like let more Libra than Taurus for me personally. But I also, for some reason, I'm getting some strong Virgo vibes from her. Like, very strong, kind of, like, practical, solutions-oriented, like, but very, like, nurturing and caring, um, very, like, associated with, or, like, focused on domesticity and also eroticism, but, like, Mm -hmm. you know, so kind of the Virgo vibe. Also, Libra, I just feel like, because, duh, like, sensuality, sexuality, which is also, like, the 
like equilibrium of the scales meeting halfway absolutely like that side of it like Mm -hmm. man woman major conflict one fucked up the other kind of fucked up it doesn't even know that they fucked up we're gonna fucking lay it out equally right now look what you both did right i can't believe it okay what do you think she is um so i was also thinking she was probably i was thinking she was an earth sign but I was yeah, either thinking Virgo or Taurus. But I also get strange hints of Sagittarius in her. Oh, interesting. Which I think comes, because I didn't totally cover this, but she had traveled the world a lot while she was stud- studying, especially when she was studying um, all these international couples. And like there was a point where I talked about how she was going to different countries and dealing with migrants and immigrants who were like forced out of their country for whatever reason so she kind of had like a big travel moment but then I also think she has a lot of um unconventional unpopular opinions that like go against the societal norm yeah like she like she has like a a taboo mindset that like will piss a lot of people off Mm -hmm. and I not that like I don't know that that's super Sagittarius, but I feel like Sagittarius does have a tendency to, like, be headstrong in, like, their beliefs. I think that's totally Sagittarius. They're very much, like, punk rock. Sagittarians are, like, the punk rock sign of the Zodiac, in my opinion. Well, and also when she was inspired by the fucking Clinton-Lewinsky affair. I need to read that article. Yes. Like, yeah. that, like everybody was outraged by that. She was like, oh, my God, I'm inspired. I just had the greatest idea. Infidelity. It's great. This is why it happened. He's trying to... Bl- like, she had all these intelligent thoughts about it. Analytical thoughts. Like... Right. And then freaking writes an article and gets a book offer? Yeah. Okay, I think we should call her at, like, a Libra Virgo cusp. Or a Taurus. The thing with Tauruses, though, is that, like, I feel like she's so open-minded. Sorry, guys. But, you know what I mean? Like, Tauruses aren't like, let's hear both sides. Tauruses are like, it's my side. I'm right. Yeah. I'm the only one who exists. No, and she's very open to exploring both sides. Oh, you know what's another quote that she has that I think is, like, so powerful? Hmm. <laughs> I said this to one of my friends the other day. <laughs> she was talking about how her and her husband got in a fight about something, and I was on my Esther Perel, like, two-week binge, and all <laughs> I can do is, like, quote her every chance I get. <laughs> and I was like, well, Esther Perel says... <laughs> Do you want to be right or do you want to be married? Ooh. Uh, so that makes me think of a yoga class I went to where there was a, a lesbian yoga teacher who was like telling us that her mentor had told her, do you want to be right or do you want to be in relationship? Which like is the same thing, but it's cooler because it's two R's. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be right, motherfucker. That's what I want, which is why I will die alone. Thank you very much. Good night. <laughs> Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. I have to start by saying, let's pray that I make it through this because, <laughs> not because I'm so wasted, but because I didn't do a ton of rehearsal on this because I had chosen another woman, 
But then today, through researching her, I found someone else that I was like, oh no, I gotta cover this bitch instead. So, a little bit last minute, but, and I will tell you why. So, the woman that I had intended to cover originally was none other than the amazing, immaculate Whoopi Goldberg. Right. So, don't take her, because I will one day cover her and surprise you with her. Okay. But something that she did both as like a one woman show way back in the day when she was living in Berkeley and was an actress in Berkeley, which I never knew she was. Didn't know that. She covered a or she played a particular comedian from the 19th century. And then in 2000 and I believe 13, she also produced an HBO documentary about the same comedian. And I never heard of her. And I kind of fell down a rabbit hole researching her, and I was like, hell yes, we're going to talk about this woman, because I don't think most people know who she is, and she was a fucking trailblazer. So, without further ado, I will be talking to you today about Moms Mabley, who was a black American female stand-up comedian in the 19. 19- 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And she was groundbreaking not only for her various social identities, which included being a woman, being black, and being a lesbian. She's also often credited as being largely instrumental for helping to shape modern comedy into the satirical and social commentary focus that it currently has. Because she would talk about things like lesbian love affairs, uh, race relations, and things that people weren't necessarily touching and that were a little bit taboo, which is kind of par for the course now for comedy, but Moms Mabel helped pioneer all this shit. Okay, you need to tell me how her first name is spelled. Literally like M-O-M-S. That's not her (laughs) real name. It's her nickname, and we'll get into why. Moms Mabel. I couldn't get past it. Her stage name in full was Jackie Moms Mabel. Mabley. I'm sorry. Mabley. I'm so sorry. Jackie Moms Mabley. I'm saying her name wrong. I dropped the Y. M-A-B-L-E-Y. Okay. But she was born as Loretta May Aiken because I love covering bitches who don't go by their birth names. That is my jam. That is so your jam. (laughs) My fucking jam. She was born Loretta May Aiken in North Carolina in 1894. This is almost the only thing for sure that we know about her early life. And I say almost because I'm not even sure 1894 is the right year. But we're going with the best information that we have at hand. So depending on what source you reference, she is one of either 12 or 16 children. Either way, that's a fuck ton of children. (laughs) Like, I can't even use a soup, an extra large tampon. Like, I can't imagine 12 to 16 children marching out of my vagine. But okay. As we, we always cover these women. So back when you had a thousand children, she, uh, her father owned a few businesses in their town that they lived in North Carolina, including a grocery store and some others. He was also a volunteer firefighter, and he died in a fire truck explosion 
when she was young, again, the, I read anywhere from age 10 to 11 to 14 to 15, depending on the source. So, but we do know for sure that he died in a fire truck explosion. And I don't know exactly how much later, but it sounds like it was maybe the same year within a couple of years. Her mother died on Christmas Day being hit by a truck on her way home from church. Oh my God. Yes. So that's that. Um, so obviously had kind of a crazy early life. Uh, I also like debated whether or not I wanted to include this, but I feel like because so much of comedy comes from darkness, it's kind of important to know their pain because I feel like it really informs the, how they do their comedy. She, the story goes that she was raped twice in her childhood, once by a white sheriff of the town that she lived in, both of these rapes resulted in pregnancies, and those children were in turn put up for adoption. She so had them? by the time she was fourteen years old, she had been she had had two babies and put them up for adoption through rape. That's so, fucking horrible. And both of her parents had died like these tragic early deaths. Some accounts say that she was forced to marry an older man that her father wanted her to marry that she absolutely hated. She references this a lot in her stand-up, but it hasn't been confirmed. So we don't know if it happened and there's just no record of it, or if it's just kind of something she sort of fabricated for her stand-up. But what we do know for sure is that when she's 15 years old, excuse me, 14 years old, she ends up moving to Cleveland, Ohio, and she joins the Black Vaudeville scene, where she serves as an all-around entertainer. And her reason for doing this was because, quote, I was pretty and I didn't want to become a prostitute. So she's 14, pretty, an orphan, may or may not have been married off to a man she hated. And she's like, fuck this, I'm going to go become a star. See you later. Goes to Cleveland, ends up touring with this theater company that actually does mostly tours in the southern United States. During this time, she briefly dates a performer named Jack Mabley, and she takes his entire name. So she starts going by, until she gets the nickname Moms, she starts going by Jackie Mabley, which of course made me think of Madam C.J. Walker, yep. who's just like, fuck you, bitch, this is my name. This is a quote <laughs> from a 1970 Ebony interview with Moms Mabley. Quote, he had taken so much from me, the least I could do was take his name. Oh my god. Get a girl. Get that fucking name. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So while she's in the vaudeville circuit, she sings, she dances, she acts, but her real strength is her comedy. And in 1921, a married song and dance duo by the name of Butterbeans and Susie, which is the cutest duo name I've ever heard in my life, scouted her out from a Dallas nightclub. And they basically were like, hey, girlfriend, you're way cooler than this fucking traveling pony show, and you need to come kick it with us. So they end up hooking her up with an agent. She gets a much better deal. During her time on the vaudeville circuit, she was making about 14 bucks a week, and now she's making about 95 which is, you know, basically the minimum wage in the United States of America in 2019. So <laughs> she's fucking killing game in the 1920s. Um, at this point, 
she ends up going up to New York and she becomes, so this is at this point, this is the 1920s, the 1930s. The Harlem Renaissance is popping off. So she becomes like a fixture in that circuit. She's playing all the clubs. Uh, and during this time, she develops what would become her signature stage persona, which is Mom's Mabley. So she would go out, for some reason, she doesn't have teeth. I think just because she was born in like the 1890s and nobody had like access to dental health care. So she has like dentures at a super young age. I couldn't find any information about this, but like she, and so she starts like part of her stand up persona as moms is to perform without teeth. So she has those like flappy old people gum thing going on. But it like works. It's so funny, and she's and she wears like these, you know, these big like floppy muumu dresses, and she has this persona of like a of like a elderly black mom, basically. Oh my god! And it's hilarious. And one of her, I feel like for some reason you will appreciate this because I do feel like you are destined to become a cougar at some point in your life. Twenty years from now, you're gonna be banging like twenty one year old men. I just know it. A core part of her routine is to talk about how much she hates older men and how only young men can do it for her. Oh, and this wow. is like the 19th, I mean, this is like risque comedy coming from a female, you know, like yeah. A, talking about like sexual preferences whatsoever, and also B, talking about them in this sort of almost manly way, for lack of a better word, and mm-hmm. you know, in this kind of like... I don't want to say sleazy, but this is very like, hey, girls, what I'm into. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, she says the only thing, something she brings up, I heard in many routines, the only thing an older man can do for me is give me a message from a younger man. Oh, wow. No, she's, yeah, she's, she likes the young ones, it would seem. Um, but also as an out lesbian, we'll get to that later. So she's moving through the Harlem Renaissance. She develops this personality. She, at this point, gets the nickname Moms, not only for that personality, but because it sounds like she really did serve as a mentor to other comedians, other performers, and especially other female comedians and performers. Because, again, even today in 2019 female comedians aren't nearly as well known. It's, I think that's changing a little bit now, but mm-hmm. for, for so much of comedy's history, it's been just a bunch of white guys being like, Oh my God, like women, am I right? You know? So like she, it's you know, fun. her, she was like this, I mean, massive trailblazer and something that in this documentary that of course I watched that Whoopi Goldberg produced on HBO. Um, they talked to, they talk to black male comedians. They talk to you. Kathy Griffith. Griffin? Griffith? Griffin. The redhead? Yeah. She's in there. I'm like, oh, what? You still here, girl? Like, but they had her in there. God bless her. With her red hair. Still looking good. Um, and just everyone talking about how how well she was able to give commentary on things like race in America at a time when you weren't really talking about that. But because she had this kind of old lady persona, people accepted it, which is this interesting parallel between our two women tonight is this like them being able to talk about these topics that for whatever reason, people can't normally listen to, or they don't want to ingest, but the way that they deliver the message, it manages to get through to people. So there's something about her having 
that persona without pandering to stereotypes of like being a black mammy from the South, you know, like she was being a, like this older mother figure, but it was completely hers and it was completely unique and it wasn't playing on any stereotypes. And for whatever reason that managed to, to hit with audiences and they absolutely fucking loved it. And she got away with talking about like some really hardcore stuff for her time, including lesbian humor. So this is what, we can talk about this. She comes out as a lesbian at the age of 27. Um, and she has a lot of sort of lesbian stand-up, quote-unquote, as part of her routines. She's one of the very first openly gay comedians. But I also, again, not a lot of info available for her. She had six kids throughout her life. That includes the two that she put up for adoption when mm-hmm. she was young. But she had four other kids after that. I don't know who they were with. I don't know how, like, she, but she identified as lesbian, but clearly she was also banging it out with men, so. Wait, so where are those kids? Um, I think at this point. Like, did she raise the other four, or were they all kind of like. That is a great question. I really don't know. The only thing I could find, I found an article after she had died about who got what in her will. But beyond that, I couldn't find any information on, like, I got their names, but I don't know, like, who she had them with, if she raised them, if they were raised with, like, absolutely no information. Mm-hmm. Um, and she never got married unless, you know, that marriage in her youth actually did happen. And people know that she was known for having affairs with women. So just very mis- very mysterious erotic creature. Us there. <laughs> very mysterious. Um, but at any rate, she presented herself publicly as a lesbian on stage and did a lot of lesbian stand-up humor, stand-up humor. And for that reason, she is known sort of as an LGBTQ pioneer hero, shiro, for that reason. So throughout the 30s and 40s, she's performing with big names like Louis Armstrong, Zora Neale Hurston. Again, she's deep in the hard limb rent. In the late 1930s, she becomes the first female comedian to perform at the Apollo Theater, which was a fixture of New York City comedy, especially black comedy. And by the 1950s, she's making $10,000 a week at the Apollo, which like, I, what? $10,000 a week? A week in the 1950s as a black female performer. How the fuck did she pull that off? She was that fucking good. She was pulling in the audiences. And let me let me finish. She was the one of the highest paying performers of her era. And she appeared at the Apollo more than any other entertainer in the theater's history. Wow. It, she it also, was all because of those no teeth. <laughs> Listen, those flappy jaws, like they're in. Um, I didn't note down the exact year because I didn't see it, but I heard it in the documentary that she also became the first, I don't even think black female, just female performer to do stand up comedy at Carnegie Hall, which was oh, like wow. up, which was, hist- which was huge for a black comedian or a black entertainer of any stripe to be at Carnegie Hall. That was like, there was the Apollo, which was like open to kind of anybody. And then that, and that was like the big thing. That was like the big ticket theater for everyone. But Carnegie Hall was like very fucking white. 
And so for her to do stand-up at Carnegie Hall was actually a huge deal. Okay. In the 1960s, during this time where she gets in the Carnegie Hall situation, she finally starts to get some traction with white audiences. And I say finally, like... Not because as a black artist, what you need to do is appeal to white people, but because white people have the money. And so if you could be accepted by a white audience, that meant that you could like make it big time and actually make great money. So that was a big deal back then. Uh, She ends up going on mainstream television shows like The Ed Sullivan Show. And I did not write this down. It was later in her life. But she actually did a cover of a song called Abraham, Martin, and John, which I never heard of before. Have you heard of this? No. It is a song written by, I didn't write his name down. It was performed by someone named Dion. I don't know who that is. But it's been covered many times, and it's about the assassinations of Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., and John F. Kennedy. Oh, Right, so when I first saw it, I was like, are, are we talking about John Lennon? Like, that was my thought. Because, like, that was such a, I don't know, to me, like, I don't know, I'm like, John F. Kennedy, but what did he actually do? Why is he in this song? It doesn't matter. But she did a cover of that that was so popular that it hit the Billboard Top 40 chart, making her the oldest person to ever rank on the Billboard Top 40 in history. How old was she? She was in her mid-70s. Yes. Oh, my God. Like, what kind of, what kind of, a, like, a, like a, a vocal song? Yeah. So it's like she's singing, and it's like a, it's like a sing-talking kind of Bob Dylan, take a yeah, walk on the wild, yeah, yeah. you know, just yeah. kind of like you're not fully singing, but you're like you're talking with jazz. Yeah, you But I watched a video in this documentary. There's a video clip, which this is kind of funny. Why in the 70s did music videos just consist of like one person singing to a room of people sitting on couches? Like it's actually really awkward. Like the music videos of the time are just them like singing to a bunch of people like on stage. Like just it's really weird. But she's singing this song. And you, it's so interesting as a comedian because you see, like, she has so much emotion happening as she's singing the song. Like, she's not crying, but her eyes are really glistening, and, like, you can tell she's having some fifis. And this camera is just, like, panning to this room full of people who are a mix of black and white, and, like, it's just a mix of, like, 70s porn star mustaches, and then, like, white blonde girls and black men crying so it's just like everyone's like so emotional about this like beautiful song and the way that she's singing it and like the passion and heart that she's bringing to it but it's just like the video is very weird i'm just like i feel awkward watching this but it was it's a very powerful performance um and i thought i thought it was kind of interesting because it brought out this thing that we all kind of know about comedians which is like how deeply emotional they really are. Yeah. Which is what makes them such good comedians because mm-hmm. they have to laugh about it to survive. And it's just her whole career was built on making these jokes and they were kind of taught, like, you know, they were kind of like, you know, sexual and like dirty and risque. Mm-hmm. And yet when she had to get serious, like yeah. it really impacted people. 
Um, so it's really, like, really incredible. Uh, Abraham, wait, let me make sure I say it in the right order. Abraham, Martin, and John. If you can look up the Moms Mabley cover of that, it's actually really powerful. So honestly, like, that's that's kind of her story because there's really not a lot of information about her. Again, really kind of made, like, broke new ground in comedy, not just as a female, not just as a black woman, but her ability to very delicately dance around these things like racial injustice um, to to black audiences and to white audiences and to have them laugh at it. And that, to me, is such a profound thing because in this day and age especially where we're just screaming about everything and you can't laugh about anything because that's seen as insensitive and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, we shouldn't be having jokes at other people's expense if they're, like, suffering. I understand that. But it does speak to the power of comedy over the power of screaming at someone. Mm-hmm. You know, like this ability to, if you can get someone to laugh with you, you're much more likely to get them to listen to you. Yeah. You know, and her, and she just did that so gracefully, and it was just second nature to her. Um, and the fact that she was able to break through to white audiences with the stand-up that she had, I mean, the fact that she was able to speak to any audience with the stand-up that she had, talking about, like, female-on-female relationships, talking about being a cougar before there was a word for it. Like, that in and of itself was incredible. And that she could also appeal to a white audience while still maintaining her authenticity and who she really was is, like, a testament to what an incredible performer she was. But also what a social genius she was. Mm -hmm. You know? Like, to be a good comedian like that, you have to be an incredibly socially, emotionally intelligent human being. And so she may have not had an education, and she may have, you know, I don't even know what schooling she had, but she was working from the age of 14 on, and she was just smart as fuck. She uh, had, like, life experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, a lot. She had at <laughs> least 11 siblings, maybe 15, and that's just too And much. a gang of kids and a gang of chicks and dicks. <laughs> chicks and dicks! That was her! So, Moms Mabley, Jackie Moms Mabley, passed away on May 23rd, 1975, at the age of 81. And as I mentioned previously, in 2013, Whoopi Goldberg made a documentary film about her life. The documentary was nominated for two Emmy Awards, and it helped to revitalize, excuse me, her memory with a younger audience because even though she was so instrumental in modern comedy, almost nobody knows her name. I didn't know her name. So. Wow. That's, that's Jackie mom's Mabley. Wait, Maybe she's so- born with it. Maybe it's Mabley. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why you need to be running Twitter. <laughs> that- I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Okay. That was that was literally a Twitter that would have gotten a billion retweets. <laughs> like you don't know that you're actually the Twitter guru. But like how but if people don't follow us then how can they find our tweets? No, we have a hundred followers and then <laughs> let's just say let's just say fifty of those hundred retweeted that, everyone okay. they follow sees it. And then they're like, you- Oh, that's funny. I'm gonna follow that person now. Because I know, like, hashtags started on Twitter, but there's no room for them, right? Like, how... Uh, 
as long as you're in the like whatever the new whatever the character law is. All right, I will post that. Sorry, I didn't plug my computer in. Wait, 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 one thing I feel like I missed. How did Whippy Goldberg know her? She played her in a one-woman show in Berkeley in, I think, the 60s. I made that decade up. Maybe Wait, who played who? Whoopi Goldberg played her. Okay. Played Moms Mabley. But they never actually crossed paths in their careers? That is a great question. I don't think they did. Okay. I don't think they did. Because Whoopi, because I started researching her, I think she was born in the 50s. So by the time Moms Mabley died, she was only in her 20s. So I don't think they ever crossed paths. So, so much about her life is unknown and mysterious. And yet, I do have a birth date for her. So. Is she a Pisces? Yes. (laughs) Are you kidding? Are you kidding? I literally was like, there's no way Melissa is going to guess this. Are you fucking kidding me? What possibly made you think she was a Pisces? I cannot believe this. <laughs> March 19th, 1894. What the fuck? That's literally the only guess I had. Why Pisces? I would have never thought that. Honestly, I only picked that because she, like, even just, like, the gums and the teeth thing. <laughs> like, I just feel like Pisces do, like, weird shit and like that True. was like the only trigger that i had i cannot fucking believe you guys Pisces. you're so good at this i can't i like can't handle it i just think her being a comedian like for some reason it was less about her like struggles and more about her like channeling that into comedy and like being goofy on stage and banging chicks and dicks and then like doing some crazy song about these dead people and she's like it all just like to me seemed like just quirky shit that could either be Aquarius or Pisces but I just did not feel Aquarius well that's what I was gonna say I'm curious to know why you didn't guess Aquarius in lieu of Pisces because that's usually who we go to when we think of weird shit I know. I think that Aquarius are usually weirder than that. Fair. <laughs> it's like they're way more abstract, and you're like, yeah, okay, that, I don't yeah, know. yeah, more, more outer spacey. Like <laughs> Pisces are a little more dialed down, weird, like quirky. And you know what? Maybe it was also because, like, you know how you sent me that Parks and Rec Zodiac video? Oh, that was so good. Yeah, there was like the funny when we were when we were watching them. So there's this video of Parks and Rec scenes, and then as the scenes are playing, a little zodiac sign will pop up on that person in that specific character in that scene. And there's one particular scene that was killing me because first of all, I'm a major Parks and Rec fan. Yeah, and the um. The scene where they're at uh, Tom Haverford's, like, snake bar or whatever it is. <laughs> and it shows, like, every character wasted at the bar. Yes. And the funniest one to me was fucking Ron. <laughs> he, he was, was dancing. The, but he was the Pisces. Right. 
Right. And he was, like, the craziest one, which, like, normally in regular life, sober, he's the most stoic and, like, rule-abiding. Right. And so it showed him in his, like, wild element. And for whatever reason, I feel like I like that was kind of channeling Pisces vibes <sighs> when I thought of her. That is so fun. And, like, that is something I'm only just now realizing about Pisces is, like, they are, once you get them inebriated, they are completely different people. <laughs> Like, completely different fish. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I literally... I cannot believe you guessed her sign. I was like, there's no way she's going to guess this. <laughs> I don't even know what I would have guessed. I think my first guess... I don't know what I would have guessed. I would have maybe guessed Sagittarius. I don't know what I would have guessed for her, but I would not have guessed Pisces. I would not get. I would not have guessed a water sign. Well, we will be taking next week off. Um, we would love to hear from you, although we know you, we fucking won't. Um, <laughs> most sister at gmail.com, especially around the first half of the episode, and really just that entire conversation around relationships, etc. Would love to hear from you, but you know, not expecting anything from you fuckers at this point. <laughs> But we'll try to keep up on social media over the next week. We'll do better. We're going to be do better. better. I'll, I'll contribute more this time. Well, and Melissa's going to make me do Twitter now. I think you're going to kill the game on Twitter. I, I'm I, scared. I would not pass this off to you if I didn't think you'd excel at it. Whatever, you're passing it off because you're like, this sucks, I hate Twitter. No, I'm just bad at it. I'm not clever enough. I don't know. Okay. I think you're going to be good. I say right. give it a three-day maximum before you give up. What do I say? What are you even Literally, talking about? like, all the weird shit that comes to your mind. Half of it is going to be about pussy, and the other half is going to be about cheese. Like, is that big on Everyone Twitter? loves both of those things. <laughs> <laughs> all right, fair. All right. All right, well, good night. Goodbye. Send us your money. <laughs> Bye.